My name is Joanne Averson, and this is the podcast, Pain Removed, Performance Improved. I've had the most wonderful response to the podcast episode called Zoom Room Gloom, when we talked about brain drain strain from being in Zoom Room Gloom. And I talked a lot about cognitive dissonance in that episode, and I've had some really gorgeous feedback and questions. And one of the questions I had was, so if there's cognitive dissonance, what's the opposite? How do we resolve it? What do we do? And all the questions were variations on that theme. So what I thought I'd talk about today is recognising resonance. So if you think about the word cognitive, cognising, recognising resonance, is not necessarily the opposite of cognitive dissonance, but it's the invitation to take that state, once we can recognise it, therein lies the key, and bring it to a state of resonance, which partly starts simply by recognising the cognitive dissonance, ironically. One of the things that we're beginning to move towards in this relatively new or gradually establishing approach to anatomy and physiology and I hesitate to use the word biomechanics, but we'll get more into that in the episodes when we start with the Bs. We're still in the A's of architecture and archetypal patterns of the fascia. In the background, we're threading an alphabet thing through this. So we'll go on soon to talk about biotensegrity. And some people have never heard of it. Some people are completely lit up by it. And some people groan, oh God, here we go. And they think it's a lot of things that it's not. One of the things that biotensegrity is, and we'll we'll follow this up with several episodes on the subject because I can talk about it forever, is a way of seeing human motion, human living animation in terms of nature's biology. And while we may think that's what we do in biomechanics, it's not. And I'll tell you why later in another episode. But for this episode, while we're talking about recognising resonance, we have to mention biotensegrity because it honours the fact that the human body is a pre-tensioned architecture. Now, what that means is that you, as an embryo formed in the round, in rounded structures, we're in the realm of soft matter physics, not hard matter physics. And resonance is possibly one of the most fundamental keystones of our ability to be aware and to be self-conscious. And this is a very important underlying, um, it's more than important, it's an essential underlying understanding when we're working with fascia, when we're working with people who are in pain, when we're looking at removing that pain and improving their performance because we enter a realm where 
very subtle changes can make huge differences. And we're working with a very different field to the one we thought we were working with, and it's a paradigm shift. So if I sound hesitant or as if I'm going round and round in circles that are not making sense, stay with me knowing that I'm consciously acknowledging the confusion that there is in the world around this idea of resonance. I come across a lot of people who say things like, oh, it's all about what resonates with me. It's all about what feels right. It's all about the vibe man. You know, I'm old enough to have been accused of being a hippie by my son is the (laughs) shortcut to that. Um, But the truth is that's all we do. The fundamental fact of the matter is we only resonate or not. And resonance is so powerful a foundation for understanding human architecture and appreciating that architecture as the interface between what happens to us and how we respond to it to our perception of pain and our actual reception of injury, they're not the same necessarily. And how we deal with something that we can't see, i.e. an invisible force. And the thing about Zoom Room Gloom is that the cognitive dissonance, the, if you like, the jarring, if we could say that, produced by seeing your own face talking back at you through not being able to do the subtle body reading that you're actually doing all the time when you're looking at people, when you're interacting with them physically, through the subtleties that you are not able to deduce through the screen and through the major cognitive dissonance that they are in the room with you, but they're not in the room with you. They're in their room. You're in their room with them, but you're not there either. So these subtle and gross incongruencies, these dissonances, are palpable, experienceable, visible in the sense that you see where you are and where they are. But it's the invisible cognitive dissonance that can be so distressing. And by observing that from what I call a bioemotional standpoint or a metaphysical standpoint, we begin to bring ourselves, our self-awareness into resonance simply by observing that it is the way that it is, i.e. cognitively dissonant. In a sense, by telling the truth about that, we can begin to understand our somewhat misunderstood responses, reactions, feelings of overwhelm, abilities, stroke inabilities to deal with it. So as strange as it may sound, simply becoming aware of the impact of cognitive dissonance, the fact of it being present to that fact, brings us into, even if ironically, recognising resonance.
Now, where does all this come from? Let's let's unpack a few ideas from this. Historically, and I've mentioned this before in other episodes, anatomy was taught to us through the breaking down of the body into component parts. Now, interestingly, the person that did the original, Candace Pert calls it turf deal with the Pope, was René Descartes. And René Descartes was a very brilliant philosopher. There's no question about that. And he was an horologist. So he studied clocks and the workings of clocks and likened the human form and the way it worked to that of any other automaton. Now, I've said this in previous episodes that autos means self. And so an automaton then meant something that self-motivates, something that moves itself. And Descartes actually is very famous for his phrase, cogito ergo sum, the Latin cogito ergo sum, meaning, I think, therefore I am. However, that's not what it means. Cogito means I doubt. Doesn't mean I think, it means I doubt. And it was Yap van der Waal that taught me that that's a very different translation. That's not just about the thinking mind. That's about the self-conscious awareness that can stand aside from the thinking mind and recognize and observe what the thinking mind is thinking. So that's not an intellectual process. That's a conscious process. So what do I mean by that? Well, in yoga, we talk about chitavritti, meaning roughly mind chat. And that's the commentary that we have about everything, the kind of quantifiable data, the the actual quantity measurements, how tall we are, how small we are, is our blood count right? Is our beats per minute right? Is our breath rate right? And we have these standards by which we tick off these quantifiable data-based information. Observing, watching ourselves, doubting ourselves is an act of consciousness. And that's a subject we could talk about forever, very dear to my heart. However, I invite you to consider, I doubt therefore I am, means I am self-aware and I can consider what I'm doing from a position of observation. And as soon as we do that, we perhaps allow ourselves the possibility that there's more to it than there appears to be. And that in and of itself can actually have us forgiving ourselves that we don't even understand what's going on in one way. Now, cogito, I doubt, cogs and clocks obviously go together very well. And I don't think it's a coincidence that some of René Descartes' meditations were based on the workings of clocks. His understanding of the human body was reduced to the functioning of a clock. And since that time, in um, studying the body in human biomechanics, we are often given the phrase that the spine acts like an upright inverted pendulum. Now, you don't need to know what it is and it doesn't. But the point is that clocks actually 
played quite a big part in the foundations of the fathers of biomechanics and their deductions that we've inherited for the last 400 years to explain human movement. And studying anatomy meant that each one of those cogs was cut out on its own and analysed and named as a part. So when you go into any therapeutic practice, one of the first things you're faced with is learning your anatomy. And that means learning the origin and insertion of every muscle or the attachments of every muscle to every bone. And then which bones are connected to which bones where. And then the location relative to bony landmarks, usually, of the viscera, the guts and the organs. And then you learn the neural anatomy of the nervous system and then the circulatory anatomy of the circulatory system. And they're all learned as separate systems and separate parts. Now, let's go back to the watch analogy. Let's imagine that someone's given you a bag of watch parts. And those watch parts are all perfectly named and numbered and there's even a manual. And then consider the difference between that and the craftsmanship that knows how to put it together to make a watch. Hmm. Or a clock. And no one has ever yet taken parts of a human body and bolted it back together to make a functioning human. It's never happened and it's never going to. So what I invite you to consider is what I call the Pinocchio principle, is that we have learned about the body as if we were Giuseppe and Coppelia, the ballet that is the story of Pinocchio that we were the puppet master who makes this beautiful puppet and just longs for it to turn into a living boy. When women go into hospital to have babies or have babies at home, wherever they have the babies, there is no limb bolt-on procedure. It doesn't happen. We self-assemble from the inside in the supporting environment of the mother, but we self-assemble which makes us autos, self-assembling. And the forces that we learn to manage are largely invisible. And when you watch a craftsman put together a watch, there's an invisible skill at play in the sense that something much deeper than knowing the names of the parts and something much more powerful than knowing the order they go in, understands the artisan skill of creating a timepiece. It's very different. And every single one of us self-assembled and grew our parts from the self-assemblage at each stage of embryonic development. But something I find completely fascinating. And did so not in a mechanical, 
functional way, but in a soft tissue, architectural, rounded way. So if you imagine a tent that's been assembled, it's not a tensegrity structure, but stay with me because it is a tension compression structure, and somebody tied a big knot in the tent. So imagine a circus marquee and imagine somebody tying a big knot in a panel of the circus marquee. Can you imagine with that visual metaphor that the whole marquee would be distorted? The uprights wouldn't all be upright. The mast would be slightly bent. The Everything would be in a different place. And if you undid the knot, you would equally impact the whole structure. And that is the essence of what we're working with when we talk about the fascial matrix as the body's architecture, as a pretensioned architecture. We are already self-assembled under tension. It's also known as a pre-stiffened architecture, but that's another whole conversation about what stiffness means. The point together here is that because we're a pre-stiffened architecture, we are something like an instrument in the sense that very, very different, but nevertheless, just to give you an idea, a harp is a tensioned, pretensioned instrument. So the strings are under tension. So is a guitar, so is a violin, so is a viola, a double bass, a cello. They are all strung instruments where the string is tensioned over a shaped architecture, completely integrated with it in such a way that they are in what we call a reciprocal relationship. Now, an instrument has a static reciprocal relationship and a human body has a dynamic reciprocal relationship. And that's what makes it alive. It's, it's, it's a dynamo. It's a self-motivated dynamic system. Whereas the instrument is not self-motivated. The instrument sits there, your guitar is leaning against the wall until you pick it up and become the animation of those strings. You're already animating your own strings. And the question of resonance is, are your strings resonating in the field of your recognition? i.e. is the self-assembled architecture resonating with the self-aware being? Now, that's a huge question. That's a huge philosophical question and it's a huge physiological question now that we know that the physiology presents the same patterns of nature. That's what biotensegrity is all about, and we'll get to that in another episode. The point here is, if in your self-awareness you can tell the truth, the clear, simple, self-recognizing truth of the situation you're in, you can resonate with it. So by knowing that there is such a thing as Zoom Room Gloom, like a bit too much of it, a bit too frequently, a bit too intense, you can take a deep breath and go, oh, so I'm 
resonating at a volume or a rhythm or a qualitative noise level, if you will, that's a bit too much for me today. And in some ways, it's no different to knowing whether you've had enough water to drink, whether you've had enough food to eat, whether you're eating the food that resonates with you, which isn't easy in our culture, let's face it, and whether the exercise program that you're doing and whether the treatment that you have resonate with the pain that you're in, whatever that pain is. So if it's the pain of too much weight or not enough weight, if it's the pain of dehydration or oversaturation, if it's the pain of any extreme, the body is always seeking balance. And it can change. So what we could say is that the pathway to recognizing resonance, recognizing, is almost like being our own watchmaker and tuning ourselves into the correct rhythm so that we operate in time with the skill of the craftsman as the moving, living timepiece, because that's what we are, right? We're never, ever going to be this young again as we are right now. And we're never going to be as old as we are right now. So the wonderful work of Eckhart Tolle about being in the present moment, the presence of that awareness is simply to be still for a moment and recognize that you are in a state of cognitive dissonance. And that recognition in and of itself brings you into a certain resonance and brings you the opportunity to consider new parameters to remove the pain of that cognitive dissonance and improve your performance by juggling with what we could call the individual properties of the situation. For example, how long you're doing it for, how frequently you're doing it, the circumstances under which you're doing it. And I think it behoves each of us to, especially those of us spending lots of time on Zoom now that we would otherwise not have done. I mean, I personally am a very much an in-person, in-room kind of hands-on practitioner and teacher. So working on Zoom is it's fabulously challenging. But I really have noticed that I have to ration and balance the time for myself. Otherwise, my performance goes down and and I'm in pain. I'm tired or I have a headache or I can't focus very well or I literally run out of what feels like my energy. And it's that balance that we seek the resonance that the shape of the instrument that we are and the particular balance of our tissues, however that is, results in us being us. So each one of us can only find our own resonance by recognising it and recognising which ingredients we need to, to make the dish that we are as refined as we wish to make it in the way that we do. 
And in some ways, that's not really an answer. But in other ways, I think just becoming conscious that there is such a thing as cognitive dissonance was a great relief to me and helped me breathe better and manage better to reduce the pain of that and improve my performance by working out my own rhythm, my own pace, and my own style. I don't know if that helps, but I hope it does. Stay close, stay safe, and I wish you well.